What are we spending our $50 on? I was thinking about a shirt for me. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Roy. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about Andrea Yates. Katie's back in the host chair. Katie is back hosting this week. And Katie, what, what, what did you say we were doing? Andrea Yates. Andrea Yates. Now, uh, where'd you do your research for this one, Katie? The books were Are You There Alone by Suzanne O'Malley and Breaking Point by Susie Spencer. Ooh, neither of those give us any idea what's going to happen in the episode. And frankly, I know nothing about it. They both are named Susie. I'm suspicious right off the bat. Oh, that is interesting. Is it? Yeah. That they have similar names? The two Sues are at it again. (laughs) Why don't you go ahead and start us off on this one, Katie? Andrea Pia Yates, formerly Andrea Kennedy, was born July 2nd, 1964 in Houston, Texas. She grew up in a Catholic household and attended church regularly. We don't know much about her upbringing, but we do know that she was valedictorian of her graduating class in high school and captain of the swim team. Teachers described her as a quiet but nice. Teachers described her as quiet but nice and a very hard worker. It's claimed that she suffered from bulimia and depression in her high school years, but she has never confirmed this herself. She did suffer a bout of depression after her first serious relationship ended when she was 24. After high school, she went to school to become a registered nurse and worked at a Houston hospital. She lived in the same apartment complex as Russell Rusty Yates, and the two met in 1989. You can never really tr- fully trust a Rusty, so... Well, in Texas, they're everywhere. Yeah. You don't can't. step on a Rusty nail, so... You can't what... throw a stone without hitting a Rusty in Texas, though. That's so probably it's literally true. like she had no choice. But what drew her to Rusty? Was he just kind of a handsome guy, or what? He's okay. <laughs> what if he didn't have a unibrow? I mean, he's he's okay looking. I, I don't know exactly what, what drew them together, okay. but I think living in the same apartment complex helped, and then they met, and they had same the same ideals and hit yep. it off. Everyone says that love is conveniently located next door. That's a saying, right? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that so many times. Yeah, Popular I've only ever dated my neighbors. <laughs> Popular among the youths. <laughs> yes. You're very hipper. Rusty Yates first saw Andrea at the complex pool. She was floating on top of the water with her eyes closed, perfectly motionless. He tried talking to her, telling her sh- he was impressed with how she was able to float, but she thanked him and said nothing else. At least she thanked him, or else he might have thought she was, like, passed out, jumped in, tried to give her mouth to mouth. In early October, Andrea went to Rusty's apartment and knocked on his door. She explained that someone had backed into her car and was wondering if he had seen anything. In reality, this had never happened, and Andrea was just looking for an excuse to knock on Rusty's door. He said that he hadn't seen anything, and she thanked him and left. Later that month, she left a note on his windshield asking if he'd like to come over sometime. The two began seeing each other and were quickly a couple. The two were both very religious, but Rusty was not your typical Christian. He followed the teachings of Michael Waranecki, a non-denominational preacher with some batshit crazy ideas. So he was a typical Christian? No. Waranecki traveled the country in a bus with his wife and six children, preaching at college campuses and other events. He believed that attending church was a sin and that those who did so would go to hell. His wife is quoted saying, Seek Jesus not in the church or religion, and not in Christianity, and not in the system. 
The system cannot save you because it is based in Satan. So, pretty much in their eyes, organized religion is a satanic creation used to trick man to believe in things that are not necessarily biblical? Or No, they thought that everything that wasn't specifically written down in the Bible was Satan. So they would go and literally just hold signs that said, you're going to hell. And then people would be like, so why? And they'd be like, oh, you're going to college. You're learning things. Yeah. yeah. Like literally anything that they could say would send you to hell would make you go to hell. So do those people use electricity? Because like, there's no electricity in the Bible. Oh, wait. Ben Franklin is in the Bible, isn't he? Yeah, the kite. Yeah, that's the where that story came from. Ben Franklin flew the kite on the Pyramid of Egypt, and he shocked a mummy to life. His preachings focus on reading the Bible and accepting Jesus as your Savior. He believes that women are subservient and calls them helpers, saying that they should be servants to men, married or not. All of his preachings involve telling people they're going to hell for doing anything and everything, which has led to his and his children's arrests too many times to count. Is that because they're, like, disturbing the peace? Yes. Telling people this stuff? Yeah, when the Challenger blew up, they went to a college campus and held their big you're going to hell signs in front of the memorial that they held. <laughs> no shit. And all of his kids got arrested, yeah, because they would not let go of the signs when people tried to take them out of their hands. Huh, Okay. So Interesting. These are Shitty people. Huge pieces of shit. So these are like that one family that went around and protested uh, all the vets' funerals and stuff, and Pretty abortion close, claims yeah. over those. The uh, Fred, uh, what was his name? Fred Flintstone? No, something like that. He was a giant fucking prick bag, but he was the leader of the Westboro Baptist Church. Are these like the first founding organization like that, where they just get to be assholes to everyone? It's okay because they're doing it in the name of Jesus. Especially Probably. Women. All right. Rusty introduced Michael Waranecki and Andrea not long after they began dating. Rusty had met Michael on a college campus and leaned heavily into his preachings because he disliked church but felt he was going against his faith. Waranecki advised the couple to not marry quickly and claimed that Andrea seemed intimidated by him. So theoretically by their way of their church, right? And what they teach, wouldn't you want your woman to be intimidated by you? Wouldn't he be like, yeah, she's perfect, marry her. I mean, it wasn't a church because they hated church. Hated church, but he just had. I'm pretty sure he flip flop every single day. He would say one thing, and then two weeks later, be like, "I never said that." He's like, "Yeah, I'm, we're not a church. We just have a lot of people, and I counsel them." Oh, they had like no followers. Oh, no followers. They only he, had at least two. Yeah, he thought that a lot more people enjoyed his presence. After Andrea's arrest and conviction, one of her psychologists would come forward and say that Andrea's life would have been very different had she never been introduced to the Warrenekis. Against the warnings of Michael, Andrea and Rusty moved in together in early 1992 and were engaged by December. Andrea, now almost 30, felt guilty that her and Rusty were living together but not married and felt the shame that she was still a virgin. 30-year-old virgin. She was waiting till she got married. That's... Uh, doubt belief. Not many people make it. And she was also, she had a lot of body image issues. Oh, yeah, the bulimia and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she 
would, like, she never would undress or dress in front of Rusty. She would always go in the closet, and sex was always, like, a weird, shameful thing for her, so... But yeah, so, and she had also never really been in a serious relationship. She dated, like, one or two guys, but besides that, Rusty was her first for pretty much everything. They married on April 17th, 1993, and moved into their new home in Friendswood, Texas. Only two months after their marriage, Andrea was pregnant with their first child. Before getting pregnant, she and Rusty had agreed that they would have as many children as God would give them, no matter how many that may be. On February 26, 1994, Noah Jacob Yates was born. Andrea continued working until the day she gave birth, then promptly quit her job as a nurse to be a stay-at-home mother. What did uh, old Rusty do? He worked for NASA. He was an engineer. Like, the space NASA? Andrea did not admit it until later, but her problems with mental illness began with the birth of Noah. Not long after they brought him home, Andrea began hearing voices and having what could be described as intrusive thoughts or delusions. She said that she saw visions of a knife and stabbing someone. She said the vision occurred around ten times over several days. So what would that be classified as? Like, what could cause someone to be seeing these types of things? In her case, it's psychosis. Or the beginning stages of full-blown psychosis. So how, how do you differentiate between a psychosis-driven intrusive thought and just a regular old intrusive thought? Intru- it's not really technically an intrusive thought because those are like one and done. It pops into your brain and then you never really think about it again. With psychoses and your delusions, it's something that you really heavily focus on and really can't get over. So if you have like an intrusive thought where you're like, oh, I should stab this person. But if you're psychos, if you're psychotic, you're going to think that over and over. And there's usually reasoning behind it. It's not like logical to us reasoning, but there's some sort of reasoning. She pushed the thoughts to the back of her mind and didn't mention them to Rusty. Despite these thoughts, she quickly became pregnant with her second child. John Samuel Yates was born December 15th, 1995. Not long after his birth, Rusty's job with NASA required him to move to Tampa, Florida for six months. He and Andrea put most of their belongings into a storage facility and purchased a mobile home to travel and live in. After their six months in Tampa, they returned to Houston and Rusty realized that they didn't need most of the things they'd put into storage. He liked living in the mobile home, so they sold most of their belongings and their home and rented a spot at an RV campground. How'd she feel about uh, selling the house, selling the storage belongings, moving on to an RV campground, like retired couple with a bunch of kids? I mean, she was agreeable to it. I don't think she would ever like flat out tell Rusty no. She seems like the type that she just wants to be around her family. Basically. Yeah, she was very agreeable to pretty much anything and everything he asked her to do. He also believed in a subservient woman style or... He would have enjoyed if she like spoke up and talked to him, but... Not like go get a part-time job or anything. No, he wanted. He was fine with her going back to work. I'm just kidding. Yeah, she was a nurse, right? Yeah. I mean, he was totally fine with whatever she wanted to do, but she was very quiet, basically, the whole relationship. Sounds like Rusty was pretty progressive considering his surroundings. At first, Rusty and Andrea were both seen out playing with the children often and would socialize with the campground owner and other campers. This changed as they had more children, beginning when their third boy, Paul Abraham Yates, was born on September 13th, 1997. They really went with the biblical names in yeah. this one. 
In 1998, Rusty learned that Michael Waranecki was looking to sell his 350-square-foot customized bus-slash-mobile home. Needed a good amount of fixing up, but Rusty took the family to Miami to see it and decide if they wanted to purchase it. During the trip, they decided to purchase the bus and conceived their fourth child. Luke David Yates was born February 15, 1999. Andrea has never explicitly said that she was suffering from any delusions or hallucinations with the birth of John or Paul like she had with Noah, but the birth of Luke brought her illness back tenfold. On June 16, 1999, Andrea called Rusty at work and told him he needed to come home immediately. When he walked onto the bus, he found her in the back bedroom, sitting in a chair. She was bent at the waist, and her hands and legs were shaking uncontrollably. She was chewing on her fingers and could barely speak, but managed to tell Rusty, I need help. Not sure what to do, Rusty loaded her and the kids into their car and drove to the seawall in Galveston for fresh air. They walked for a bit, but Andrea showed no improvement, so he took her to Andrea's mother's house. Why didn't he just take her to a doctor? He really had no fucking idea what to do in this situation. Apparently. it's. <laughs> I mean, when you walk in on your, like, seemingly normal wife in a full-blown psychotic break, it's kind of difficult to address the situation. But Load her up in the car and drop her off at the... ER. I feel like she said she needed help. She knew. Uh-huh. He seemed to think that because this had helped her previously that it was going to help her again. And then when it didn't work, he kind of panicked and again didn't take her to the doctor. Okay. I can't be that mad at him because he tried his best, but he definitely did not do did everything correctly. Well, maybe he just only knew horses. When a horse colics, you put it in the trailer, you drive it around till it poops. You do not drive it around, you walk it. The next afternoon, June 17th, Andrea's mother woke her to tell her Luke needed to be fed. Andrea told her she couldn't breastfeed, she'd taken an overdose. While the family napped, she had taken between 40 and 50 trazodone, an extremely strong sedative prescribed to her father for insomnia. If her mother had not found her when she did, the overdose would have killed her. Andrea was rushed to the ER, where she was given charcoal and stabilized. And what... Again, to, for you know people who don't know, I obviously know. But what does the charcoal, the charcoal do? It deactivates anything in your stomach. Kind of coats your stomach. Makes you throw up. A bunch of black shit. Ooh, do you poo black? Yeah, later. Later. All right. Once the medication was out of her system, she was taken to a nearby hospital for psychiatric treatment. Andrea had lost ten pounds in three weeks. Had trouble concentrating and making eye contact, and was close to nonverbal. She was diagnosed with major depression and placed on suicide watch. Now, when they diagnose you with major depression, what are, what are they looking at for criteria for that? Is that just like a, like a certain set of guidelines they follow? Like, oh, she has depression, we're going to check her in, that's what we're going to check her in as, and continue to develop what her... Usually major depression is over a long period of time. I'm not sure exactly how long. The DSM has the criteria for, but... No, I'm just wondering, like, how they come up with that diagnosis so quick, and is that, like, where they stop? They just say, oh, this is what it is, or do they continue to test and develop what her diagnosis should be? Generally, I mean, if you try to commit suicide, that's gonna be the first thing they diagnose you as. So, and she was not, at this point, really showing any sort, any signs of psychosis so she basically just said that 
I'm really sad and I don't want to keep living and that's major depression. I mean, major depression is just like the general okay. term for depression. Kind of a catch-all. So she was always down or did she have ups? Like, was she bipolar or was she depressed? Like, just depressed? I mean, we'll talk about it more later, but yeah, she was definitely bipolar. But in her case, her manic states were... Short-lived. They weren't short-lived. I mean, they were... I think she was pretty, pretty close to the criteria for bipolar, but... When women generally are manic and they're mothers, it's seen as you're just being a good mom because you're active and you're doing all this stuff and you're getting everything done. I see. And so there's not any sort of difference, basically. Like you're de- when you're depressed, yeah, you're obviously depressed, but when you're manic, you're just doing what you should be doing as a mother. Okay, I see. Andrea's mental illness only got worse from here, and she was placed on numerous medications by multiple doctors. Before we continue, I want to give a quick overview of each medication I'm going to mention and hopefully help reduce confusion. The first is Ativan, which she was given at the hospital to help her sleep and will be given later in jail. Ativan is an anxiolytic or anti-anxiety medication. It's a crazy strong one, and if you drink alcohol on it, you will wake up on a park bench. You will die. No, you should I've never literally drink. done it before, and it was awful. You should never Ever consume alcohol when you're on any form of benzo anxiolytic? Yeah, no, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. I don't remember <laughs> any of it. You're incredibly lucky that you're yeah, alive. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I would have died. I'm pretty sure I, I woke up right before I died on a park bench. I just sort of... More than likely, <gasps> yeah. <gasps> My lungs hurt so fucking bad, but yeah. And some people say that Ativan has similar... It makes you feel basically like you're drunk. So when people are kind of depressed and not talking, they'll sometimes give them that to get them to open up because it takes away that barrier, basically. Zoloft, Effexor, Remeron, and Wellbutrin are all antidepressants. Effexor and Remeron are sometimes given together in a combination called rocket fuel because it has the ability to rapidly pull someone out of a severe depressive state. Haldol, Zyprexa, and Risperdal are all antipsychotics, as is lithium, which is used for treating bipolar disorder. Any antipsychotic and antidepressants require slowly tapering off to prevent severe withdrawal. Suddenly stopping Haldol can cause a psychotic patient to slip back into psychosis, and stopping and starting antipsychotics frequently can make psychosis harder to treat. Antidepressants can also cause severe withdrawal symptoms, mostly physical that feels like the flu, but can also cause disturbing thoughts and delusions. This will be important for later. I can't imagine that the withdrawals from something called rocket fuel would be good, like would be enjoyable. Yeah, antidepressant withdrawal is not fun. I've been on antidepressants for probably eight years for my migraines, and if you miss a dose, you are, like, on your ass. It's horrible. On June 18th, Andrea's doctor started her on 50 milligrams of Zoloft. During counseling sessions, Andrea refused to admit anything in her life that may be stressing her, and Rusty continually referred to her major depression as postpartum depression. The counselor discovered that Rusty and Andrea were living in a bus with four children. Concerned with the situation, he called Child Protective Services and reported the Yateses. A week later, she learned that CPS would not be looking into the situation as no substantial risk for abuse or neglect existed. And they went in and did a check for that, or how did they determine that? I'm not entirely sure what they did. Maybe not enough. On June 20th, Andrea's depressive symptoms had not reacted at all to the Zoloft, so her dose was raised to 100 milligrams. The next day, a nurse found her to be even more, quote, withdrawn, vague, and guarded, and that she was extremely worried about paying the hospital bill, despite being well off financially with Rusty's job at NASA. 
On June 23rd and 24th, Andrea was still severely depressed and withdrawn. Her Zoloft was raised to 150 milligrams. Is that common? a common thing to just keep raising the dosage rather than uh, you know, trying a different medication or something? In a short-term situation like this, yes. Because generally when you're going to switch from something, you have to basically prove that this one is for sure not working. So you want to raise it as high as you can possibly go, and then usually they'll switch you if you're still not seeing anything. Okay. Despite no progress being made, Rusty requested that she be released from the hospital and continue her care from home. He said that he realized she was still extremely high risk for suicide, but at this point Andrea was denying any suicidal ideation. The discharge summary listed her as in stable condition and also noted that her insurance would not cover any more nights in the hospital. Oh, so insurance companies have always been a giant fraud bunch of assholes. Yeah, and that's basically the reason that she was quote-unquote stable and able to be released suddenly suddenly overnight, basically. Yeah, she went from them just raising her Zoloft and raising it and raising it to now, oh, um, she's good. She's all set. Andrea was given a recommendation to start seeing Dr. Ellen Starbranch, a psychiatrist. Rusty took her for an evaluation on July 1st. At this point, Andrea was constantly holding Luke, but refusing to feed him when he was hungry. She was concerned that the medication from the overdose was still in her system and would make Luke sick. How long had it been since her overdose now at this point? Mm, Over a week. How long generally would that stuff stay in your system? Not more than a couple days, right? Probably a week and you would be okay to breastfeed. Even as he cried, she wouldn't feed him or put him down until Rusty or her mother coaxed her into it. She wasn't paying much attention to her other children either and was still extremely withdrawn. She would spend most of her time locked away in the bedroom and was inconsistently taking the Zoloft she was prescribed, putting herself into a loop of constant withdrawal. She scratched her scalp, nose, arms, and legs so often that she had deep abrasions. She refused to speak except minimal answers and was still suicidal. Dr. Starbranch determined that she was also psychotic and prescribed her Zyprexa to take with the Zoloft. When Andrea learned that the Zyprexa was an antipsychotic, she flushed it down the toilet. In the three weeks she'd been out of the hospital, Andrea had gone from severely depressed to severely psychotic. It came to a head on July 21st when Rusty walked into the bathroom and found her with a kitchen knife to her neck, about to kill herself. He wrestled the knife from her hands, and he and his brother drug her to the car to take her back to the hospital. At least they realize now that car ride should end at the hospital, instead of just being a drive around. To Galveston? Yeah. Yeah. While talking to a psychologist, Andrea admitted she was scared of hurting someone, so she wanted to kill herself to protect them. At this point, she was having both auditory and visual hallucinations, saying she looked into the mirror and saw a face that wasn't hers. She said, quote, There is a voice, then an image of the knife. I had a vision in my mind. Get a knife, get a knife. I had a vision of this person being stabbed. The after effects. She was also worried constantly about how the children would turn out and if she was failing as a mother. Are they still living in the RV at this time? They were at her parents. At this point, I don't think they'd go back to the RV after this. She had been in contact with the Waranekis for religious guidance and was concerned about salvation. Religious delusions are extremely common in psychosis, and it's generally recommended that psychotic persons are not exposed to extreme religion. Honestly, I think it's okay to say that nobody should be exposed to extreme religion in any aspect. It never works out in favor of your mental health. Yeah. That's definitely true. And at the same time, 
If someone's super concerned about salvation, then they're probably depressed or something. Rusty and Michael Waranecki had a falling out, so Andrea did not mention to him that she'd been in contact with them. At this point, Andrea's doctors were aware that she was not just suffering from major depression. Schizophrenia was ruled out, and it was determined that she was suffering from postpartum psychosis, or postpartum depressive depression with psychotic features. Postpartum psychosis is considered a medical emergency as it puts both the mother and the baby's lives in serious danger of suicide or infanticide. Not a lot of research has been done into postpartum psychosis, but recent studies have shown that there is a strong link between bipolar disorder and PPP. Women who have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or have a family history are at the highest risk of developing psychosis after birth. Keep this in mind as we discuss the multiple diagnoses Andrea is given and the medication she's prescribed. While in the hospital for her second suicide attempt, Andrea was having severe hallucinations. She wrote to Suzanne O'Malley, the author of Are You There Alone, and said about her time in the hospital, quote, I was in bed trying to take a nap. I started to hear a rumbling voice coming from the wall behind me. It got louder and louder and turned into more of a guttural sound. I heard what I thought was Andrea come here. Later, I believed it was Satan. I sat up in bed and shouted, What do you want? I can't remember what happened then. No one came to check on me. After a consultation with another psychiatrist, it was recommended that Andrea receive electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. ECT is a procedure where small electrical currents are passed through the brain to trigger a seizure, which helps treat major depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia that may have not responded to medication. Is this like similar to electrostatic shock therapy? From, like, the movies? They zap people with electricity? When they're asleep? No, no. When they got, when they got, you know, brain issues, when they're trying to hard reset them? Um, maybe. This is, like, a much more medically sound procedure than what they used to do to torture people out of lesbianism (laughs) in the 1900s. Well, is this a hard reset? I mean, yeah, sort of. It has around an 80% success rate. Rusty and Andrea both declined ECT and asked that they continue trying different medications. Because Andrea had a habit of either not taking her medications or spitting them back out, Dr. Starbranch prescribed her injectable Haldol, Wilbutrin, and Effexor. Rusty said that barely 24 hours after starting the medications, Andrea was completely back to her normal self. She stayed in the hospital for a total of 19 days and was released to partial hospitalization for 11 days, where she would spend the day at the hospital but sleep at home. Rusty had purchased a home while Andrea was hospitalized the first time, a three-bedroom in Clear Lake, Texas. Andrea had not complained about living on the bus, but Rusty felt that it might help her recovery and be more comfortable for their large family. Kids were like, sweet, we all get our own room. Rusty was like, no, no, it's only a three-bedroom. On August 16th, not long after being released completely from the hospital, Andrea and Rusty saw Dr. Starbranch. At that appointment, Andrea asked to be taken off all of her medications as she was significantly improved and didn't want to rely on medication. She also admitted that she and Rusty wanted to have another child or children despite her psychosis being postpartum and there being a high chance she would relapse with the birth of another baby. Dr. Starbranch disagreed and managed to keep Andrea on medication until November when she came completely off everything. By March of 2000, she was pregnant with her fifth child, along with homeschooling Noah and taking care of three other boys. At one point, she was able to get away and visit one of her friends, Debbie Holmes. During her visit, she confided to Debbie that she felt she was possessed. 
It was Satan who caused her mental health problems and had influenced her to attempt suicide. She claimed she couldn't wear the crucifix given to her and that she had thoughts of hurting someone or harm being done to her children. By this point, she'd been off medication for close to a year. She gave birth on November 30th, 2000 to their first girl, Mary Deborah Yates, which is my birthday, by the way. Can you imagine being Debbie Holmes and the, like she's sitting there telling you all this while she's pregnant and you're like, oh my God. Yeah, she was a nurse too, so she like knew that there was a major problem. All of this was completely wrong, yeah. After everything was over and her trial was over, there was a lot of people that wanted Rusty also charged for the death of the children because he got her pregnant again and he knew this would I mean, this is going to happen. I think there's like 50 to 80% chance that you're going to go back to psychosis when you've already had it with another birth. Not very far forward thinking. During the first few months of Mary's life, Andrea's father had continued to decline in health. He had Alzheimer's and was bedridden with Andrea as a major caretaker. Is that good for her mental health to be the caretaker of her? She was a nurse. I mean, it gave her something to do. Okay. I guess that's true. It just seems like it's really hard to take care of one person, another person, when you're fighting just to take care of yourself. Yeah. In February of 2001, he passed away at home. By the end of the week, Andrew was quickly slipping back into severe depression. Rather than her symptoms ramping up over a series of months, it took only a few days for Andrea to be in full-blown psychosis. She was almost completely catatonic, sitting and standing completely still except for her leg that constantly bounced. She was picking at her scalp until it bled and refused to put Mary down like she had with Luke. She wouldn't eat, drink, move, or speak, and was obviously having hallucinations, but wouldn't describe what she was seeing or hearing. When Rusty called Dr. Starbranch, he was told to get her to a hospital ASAP. The hospitals that had previously treated her were either closed or too far a drive, so Rusty began calling local psychiatrists to to see if they'd prescribe medications over the phone. On March 31st, he found Devereaux, Texas Treatment Network, a mental hospital, who agreed to take Andrea. Rusty told them each medication that had been tried and that Haldol, Wellbutrin, and Effexor worked, while Zoloft and Zyprexa didn't. The doctor that was given her case was Dr. Mohamed Saeed, All day on March 31st, Andrea refused to admit herself to the hospital. Eventually, an application for emergency detention was filed and approved. By the next day, Andrea was even worse than she'd been when she was admitted. She wasn't sleeping and refused to drink water. So obviously not drinking water can kill a person. Is that really like, so let's say you're dealing with this type of thing. Will will people in that situation like not drink water until they die? I think it's possible, but usually some sort of medical intervention will stop that. Like they probably did here? Yeah. IVs and shit? Mm-hmm. She could barely speak more than three or four word sentences and mostly replied with yes, no, or nodding her head. Dr. Saeed applied for an order to administer medication and was approved. He prescribed Effexor, Wellbutrin, and Restoral for insomnia, Tylenol, and Mylanta, and antacid. Despite being psychotic, he did not prescribe her Haldol or any form of antipsychotic. Andrea began attending group therapy, but Devereaux did not have any sort of therapy for depression. Instead, she attended chemical dependency therapy, which told her to not take medications, the exact opposite of what she should be doing. On her sixth day of hospitalization, Andrea had not improved even slightly. 
On the 6th, a nurse noted that Andrea had begun pacing. On the 8th, she ate some food for the first time and denied being suicidal. She said that she felt the same. Two days later, she was back to refusing food and pacing constantly. The next day, Dr. Saeed reported that Andrea was eating on her own, saying she felt 90% better, agreeing to partial, partial hospitalization, and denying any suicidal ideation. Generally, when you ask a person if they're having any suicidal thoughts, you also ask if they're having any homicidal thoughts. At no point during her stay at Devereux was Andrea asked. At no point during her stay at Devereux was Andrea asked if she had any homicidal ideation. So when she's saying that she feels ninety percent better and she agreed to the ho- partial hospitalization, denying her suicidal ideation, is that just her telling them what they want to hear so that she'll she can get herself out, or was she really feeling better? No, her insurance ran out again. Oh. So they, she had to be discharged, basically. So, And Dr. Saeed, I think, total over the second time she was hospitalized, spent like 15 minutes with her. On April 12th, Andrea was released from Devereux. She began partial hospitalization the next day, and when she arrived, a nurse noted that she seemed worse than she had when she was released. When Rusty picked her up, she told them she did not want to go back because her treatment was for substance abuse. Rusty called the nurse and told them that Andrea would not be returning. As the days went on, Andrea continued to decline. As she did so, Dr. Seed upped her dose of Effexor and still did not prescribe Haldol. Rusty asked that Saeed contact Dr. Starbranch to discuss what had worked so miraculously before, but Saeed didn't bother. As Andrea continued to get worse, Saeed continued to up her dose of Effexor. Now, if anything bad were to happen to her, would the doctor be essentially culpable for this for not, one, paying attention, or two, caring, seems? I mean, it's hard to say. More than likely, you could sue for malpractice, but I don't think you could, like, get him on murder. Or Mm. if she had killed herself, you could charge him with that, because he technically was treating her and what he thought was the best way, even though, I mean, there's no way to prove that he was doing something intentionally and just ignoring her as a patient. Okay. But Devereaux did have, I think, probably around 30 complaints filed against them that people had died after being treated there. They killed themselves successfully and numerous other malpractice suits. So it was not a good place. Doesn't sound like it. It definitely seems, sounds a little uh, negligent. Like there was some negligence or something, not that much caring. By May, Andrea was again fully psychotic. She would stand and stare at the television or into space for hours at a time. She wouldn't speak and rarely remember to feed the children. At this point, Rusty's mother Dora had come from Tennessee to help with the children while Rusty worked. One day, she found Andrea in the bathroom, filling the tub with water. Some claim that this was her first attempt at drowning the children, but it was actually just a delusional thought. She had seen a truck from their water company recently, which led to a thought that their water bill was past due and it was going to be shut off. She was simply filling the tub so they would have water. So it was more of a paranoid thing than anything? like. Yeah. Okay. On May 4th, Andrea had an appointment with Dr. Saeed, and Rusty asked if she should be readmitted to Devereaux. Looking at completely catatonic Andrea, Saeed replied, well, she would certainly qualify. Just brushing it off, basically. Yeah. Rusty drove her to the hospital and had to physically remove her from the car and drag her into the building. This time, she filled out the admission papers. And this time, Dr. Saeed finally prescribed Haldol. 
Andrea remained severely depressed and made little progress up until May 14th. When Rusty arrived to visit, Andrea had her bags packed and told him that she had been discharged. She was again recommended for partial hospitalization for chemical dependency. Andrea continued to see Dr. Saeed through May and into June. At her third appointment with him, he said that there was no indication that she was psychotic and that the Haldol could be hindering the effects of the antidepressants and slowing her progress. She was taking 2 milligrams in the morning and 2 milligrams at night, and Saeed told Rusty to stop the morning dose, then three days later stop the evening dose. With the drug likely taking a week or so to be completely out of her system, Andrea would be completely off the drug that helped her by the middle of June. No one could have predicted the tragedy that followed. It sounds like it sounds like the doctor was really just getting flippant with the prescribing and the changing and cutting off of what everything she was taking. It just sounds like it was way too all over the place to really be effective. Yeah, and it's not a huge dose, but she more than likely withdrawed from it from being pulled off four milligrams that quickly. Too quickly. So this type of psychiatry is kind of hit or miss is what it seems like. They're trying to treat a symptom that basically differs on every person. Pretty and much. I mean, there's certain... Generalizations, yeah. Yeah, that you can make. That's why the field is so intense because nobody's the same. And so you have, like you say, generalizations. But you have to really apply yourself to each patient, which obviously... Not all doctors. Yeah, I mean, do. if you see someone, you know, for 19 days out of a, six months or whatever, how long was it in between her hospitalizations? It was like a month. So, I mean, that's really not a whole lot of time to get to know someone or get to see if something's actually working. But this, in this case, it was obviously not working. But the Haldol seemed to be doing the trick, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, they had proof from her previous hospitalizations that the Haldol helped her immensely and that she needed to be on it along with the antidepressants and he thought because some of the side effects that you're tired you're kind of slow in your movements and your affect is a little off and so he figured that well the Haldol is what's making her depressed and so she needs to be off that so we can treat her depression that's crazy yeah, yeah the, the pill that we gave her after she was depressed must be treating her or must be causing her depression that yeah. makes sense. And he, like I said, he spent maybe over the two hospitalizations, like a grand total of 45 minutes with her. Gee, so that's no he, good. he did jack shit. And I mean, it's especially with psychology and psychiatry when you're treating in an inpatient environment, you have to be even more on your toes because you have, I mean, what, seven days to get it right and get them out of there because insurance or a lot of times once they start to show any sort of improvement you have to let them go yeah, to make beds makes sense so yeah. he did nothing and he i would say is semi-culpable for what happened okay well is that we're gonna end it this week mm -hmm. all right guys well as always if you have any questions comments or concerns feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com that's f-o-u-r cornerscrimecast at gmail.com you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And as always, give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list if you want to send us any ideas for an episode you want to hear, or just to get your free sticker from our merch store. All you got to do to get that sticker is to enter the code bingo bango at checkout. We're going to ship one of those out to you 100% for free. 
So we look forward to talking to you guys next week for part two. Yeah. Have a good week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. You can literally use it on anything that you would normally clean with a tree.